in our series through the Gospel of John, and today we're in chapter 13 once again, uh, beginning in verse 31 in a few moments. We're calling today's message Authentic Love. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to turn to uh, John chapter 13. We'll be there in just a few moments. Wonder if you've ever seen a trapeze artist, maybe at the circus or some other kind of event. Watching a trapeze show is uh, exhilarating, breathtaking at times. We wonder, you know, we wonder about their their dexterity and the timing. Gasp at the near misses. In most cases, though, we know there's that net underneath, right? When they fall, they just jump right back up and and bounce back up get back into the routine of the trapeze. And as I was thinking about that, I kind of thought, I thought, you know, our life in Christ is kind of like being on the trapeze. Ever think about that? The whole world should be able to watch and to say, as they look at God's people, wow, that's amazing. Look at how those people live. Look how they love one another. Look how well the husbands treat their wives. And aren't those Christians the the best employees, the hardest workers in the mills or the offices? They they make such great neighbors. They're great students. That's what it's like to live on the trapeze, being a show to the world. But then what happens when we slip, when we lose our grip? Well, the net is there, isn't it? The net is there to catch us. And that net is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ through which he's provided forgiveness for all of our trespasses. Both the net and the ability to get back on the trapeze and continue on, those are works of God's grace. Now, of course, we can't just continually hang out on the net though, can we? You know, if that's the case, we might Doubt whether that person is really a trapezist at all. If all they're doing is laying on the net, looking it up at the other trapeze artists. And so this morning, I want to ask that question. What about you? How are your trapeze skills? Are you climbing the structure of Christian life? Are you taking a few risks to fly through life, whether solo or with a partner or on a team? Are you practicing your skills regularly, sharing those gifts and abilities that God's given you with with others so that they can see that you're a trapezist? Or are you just kind of lounging there on the safety of the net? Maybe just kind of laying back and watching the rest of the trapeze people up above you. Now our focus today is on what we're calling the premier and distinctive mark of what we could say is the real trapeze artist or really the true disciple of Jesus. The premier and distinctive mark of a disciple of Jesus is that a disciple is one who loves like Jesus. Who loves like Jesus. We're gonna read together, if you'll join me in just a moment, the the text for today, at least a portion of our text at this point. John 13, beginning in verse 31. Will you join me? When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. 
Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Amen. God's word. Well, so far in this chapter, we've seen the last meal that Jesus has with his close disciples. We've seen Jesus exercise love in a, in a number of unique ways. He's announced that he will soon be leaving them and he's given them instructions for the Lord's Supper, a way to remember him until he returns again. He has demonstrated love by washing the disciples' feet and then challenging, challenging them to live the lifestyle of serving others in love. And he's exposed his own betrayer in a challenging and yet loving way. And now, as they leave that upper room, Jesus issues the ultimate challenge, what he calls a new commandment, to love one another. And I want to just, first of all, make a few observations about this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, and particularly this new commandment. And the first thing I want us to notice is that the word love is used four times. Whenever we see something repeated a lot, we ought to stop and say, hmm, God has a, a real important message for us there. Four times. Now, this is the word uh, pretty well known, the, the Greek word agape, referring to a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love resulting from a decision of the will. And it's in the present tense, meaning we are to keep on loving. Next, I want you to notice the phrase, one another. One another, and it's written what's called, a, a, it's a reciprocal pronoun. And all that does is it means that it indicates a mutual relationship between two subjects. And note that this one another is found three times in this little passage. We are called to commit one to another because we are a community called to live with one another, serving Jesus. And then finally, I want you to notice the pronoun you, and it's used six times, and it's emphatic. And, and that is that it's a, it's a command to us. You see, we, we can't slide out from under this because it means me and you. Or if we were talking about the Southern English dialect, it would be y'all. <laughs> you all. You and you and you and you and you and me. You all. This is about you all. About us. So Jesus had just celebrated the final last, or the last supper with his disciples. Judas had left to begin his betrayal. And because Jesus knew how difficult the coming days would be for these 11 remaining disciples, he gave them this distinctive mark of the true disciple, a mark that they could pursue, 
a mark that they could pass on to others, a mark of the true Christian faith that, by the way, has now been passed on and practiced for more than 2,000 years. The mark of agape, authentic love, of loving others like Jesus loves them. Now, while our circumstances are quite different from the people in the first century that first heard this command, there's also a lot of parallels. The difficulties that we face and they faced are quite similar. Our, our world, like their world, it seems to be less and less tolerant of our faith. And our religious liberties seem to be vanishing, just like they were in the first century. And it's easy for us to get sideways with other followers of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need each other more than ever. And so let's consider this authentic faith or authentic love. And I want to do that by looking at it in three different ways. And the first thing I want us to see is that it is a mandate to love. A mandate to love. Jesus could have told his disciples anything in this last critical conversation that he has with them. But he chose to give them a mandate to love one another. A mandate is an official order or commission to do something. Look at the first part of verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now the word new doesn't mean that Jesus just invented this. Instead, it has the idea of being qualitatively new, or we could say fresh, a fresh commandment I give to you. The word commandment refers to a, a charge or a commission. In other words, this is not a suggestion from Jesus. He's not saying, guys, you might want to just think about this. You know, when I'm gone, consider, you know, you might want to love each other a little bit more. No, that's not what he's talking about. I am giving you a commission, a charge, a commandment. It is essential it's not optional. It's something that we're called to obey. This is a charge from Christ himself right before he dies in our place on the cross. Does that make it pretty important? I think it does. So let's just pause for a moment and ponder why Jesus would refer to this as a new commandment. After all, what he's saying really isn't that new. We can go all the way back to Leviticus 19 in the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, and the Jewish people were called to love your neighbors as yourselves. So this is nothing new about loving other people. Earlier in his teaching, in his, in his moving around and about and teaching the crowds and the people and his disciples, we, we read in Matthew 5 where Jesus said that we are called to Love our enemies. Love our enemies. So we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're to love our, our, our enemies. So this idea of a new commandment to love one another, it's not, it's not new. And so in what sense is it new? Well, a couple of things. First of all, it's a new command because it's now given by Jesus to his people, to the church. It's not to Israel it's not under the law. It's what we're called to. And, and secondly, it's the beginning of this phrase, one another, that's going to be used so frequently 
in the following years to come as these disciples and other church leaders begin to write the New Testament, to write these letters, and the one another passages come out one after another after there are dozens of them in the New Testament, talking about how we are to interact with one another and to love one another. And then the third reason leads to our next point. Not only have we received a mandate to love, but secondly, we have been provided a model of love, a model of love. We don't have to wonder what Jesus is talking about. Well, what is this love you speak of, Jesus? We don't have to wonder because Jesus himself is our example. As we see in the second part of verse 34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So Jesus says, if you want to know what love looks like, just look at how I've been living, how I've been loving you, how I've been going about life. That is your model. The commandment is new because we're not only to love others as we love ourselves, but we are to go above that by loving one another as Jesus loves us. So Jesus is both our model and our motivation. It's our motivation because, wow, don't we all like to think about how much Jesus loves us? How awesome is that? And Jesus says, receive that awesomeness, but then share it with others. Be motivated to share it. We're to express love for one another to the extent that Jesus loves each of us. And we're going to see that Jesus will repeat this emphasis. Matter of fact, when we get to chapter 15, in John 15, 12, again Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so he repeats it again. Remember that in this chapter, in chapter 13, we've seen Jesus doing the dirty work of a servant when he grabbed a towel and, and a basin and he washed the filthy feet of his disciples. And I want you to notice that this phrase from back in verse one of this chapter, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If you were here a few weeks ago, you might remember that we said loving to the end means to the uttermost. We could say today, love to the max. There's no top level. You just keep loving. You know, Jesus could have just quickly wiped the feet of the disciples. But what did he do? He modeled what love looks like by rising from the table, by laying aside his outer garments, by taking a towel, pouring water into a basin, washing 24 filthy feet and drying them with that towel one by one by one. According to verses 14 and 15, this is the model for the kind of love his followers are called to demonstrate and to live out for one another. He says, since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an, what, example to follow. That's a model. Do as I have done to you. So Jesus gave a living, breathing, seared in their mind time, a moment of what it looks like to serve others selflessly. 
The newness of this command is not because it's unique, but because of its very nature. We are to love as Jesus loves by serving one another. By the way, that's why we here at Garden Way Church make a frequent effort to engage in what we might call foot-washing activities. All right? Things like providing monthly meals at Everyone Village, that transitional program for homeless people. Things like cleaning up our local school or distributing new shoes and backpacks to kids that are in need. Friends, we are not a social service agency. We're not in the business of doing good things for people. Does that make sense? Those agencies exist. They're numerous. And some of them do better jobs than we could ever do in many areas. But we are different We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we are not a social service agency. We are a love agency. We have a mandate and a model to share the love of Jesus in practical ways with people around us, both corporately as a church body and individually in the relationships that each of us have. And all of this then leads to the third aspect of authentic love. And that is manifestation through love. You see, when we love like Jesus, this becomes a strong witness to the world. As seen in verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, friends, it's not our preferences, it's not our politics or our principles which will convince people that we're Christians. The love that we manifest for one another and for those around us is the strongest testimony of the truth that we claim to believe. These 11 disciples would survive and thrive only as they obeyed his mandate to love and his model to love, and his manifestation through love. That word manifestation means an event or an action or an object that clearly shows or embodies something, especially a theory or an abstract idea. See, love is kind of a theory or an abstract idea, isn't it? And so in order for us to truly love one another, we have to recognize that love is not so much an emotion. It's not a silly love song on the radio. Love is not a thought. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling or butterflies in our stomach. You see, authentic love is instead an active emulation, a copying, a following of the one who first loved us. It has nothing to do with self-fulfillment, what I get. And it has everything to do with self-sacrifice, what I give. Notice that phrase, all people, in verse 35. That refers to who? All, everyone, that's right, all people, a totality. People will only perceive we are disciples of Jesus when they see us loving like Jesus loves. I'm reminded of a a campfire song that we used to sing when I was a kid back in the 60s and 70s. 
I'm not going to sing it for you. Aren't you glad? But it's something like this. They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Friends, the love that we have for one another in Christ's church should lead others to immediately think of the love that Jesus has. Do people know you are a Christian by your love? Can people tell that you are a disciple by how devoted you are to fellow followers of Christ? Is there another believer who kind of bothers you? Do you ever find it difficult to love those who are kind of difficult? I do, just being honest. But listen, we're commanded to love, not hate one another. And we don't necessarily have to like every person. We don't have to hang out with everybody. But we are commanded to love. The Apostle John, who has written this gospel that we're slowly working our way through, many years later, when he was an old man, he wrote these words in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 11. Some of the last words he wrote. And he reminds his readers, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We're called to love, not to hate. You know, we live in a culture and in a time and in the midst of a lot of conflict and confusion, don't we? You don't have to look far to see it. I, I, I came across what I think was a helpful insight from a, an author by the name of James Merritt. Listen to what he wrote. He said, when I think of the toxic atmosphere we're in today, I'm reminded that spit, spat, and spite are close relatives. I am determined not to spit out divisiveness. I'm determined not to get in a spat over disagreements or exercise spite towards those who have differences. Then he says this. This might hit a little close to home. Let's not let the donkey and the elephant divide what the lamb did for us on the cross. I like that statement. You know, my guess is there were some strong differences and disagreements among these first disciples too. I mean, you just think about what we know about some of these guys in Scripture. Peter was a brash guy. Strong personality. He probably irritated some of the other disciples. And then I wonder how Peter's brother Andrew felt when Peter and James and John were always getting to spend extra time with Jesus and he's on the outside looking in. We know from Scripture that the other disciples got jealous when James and John were angling for top spots in in Jesus' kingdom. I mean, just imagine. Can you imagine the tension between Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector? Now, Simon was part of a, a radical political party that used force to achieve its goal of liberating Israel from Roman rule. 
Well, Matthew worked for Rome and collected taxes from his own fellow Israelites to give to Rome and to line his own pockets in the process. Imagine those two guys around the dinner table. Well, they surely had natural conflict because of their politics. They had Christ in common. And they were learning how to love one another like Jesus loved them. Tertullian is a prolific writer, theologian, and historian that lived during the, the, the second and third century. And uh, it, that was a time when opposition to Christianity was very, very intense. And I want you to listen to what he wrote. This is from the year 197. He wrote about how pagans, those apart from Christianity, how they viewed Christians. Listen to his words. He says, it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another, how they are even ready to die for one another. One heathen said this about Christians, they love one another almost before they know one another. You hear that? The people outside were looking in on the Christians and they're just, their minds are blown by the love these people are exercising for one another. That reminds me of a, another quote from another famous theologian, Augustine. It still resonates today as he said of the early church, as he wrote, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. It's an old-fashioned word for love. So, Friends, here's a question. Is there enough of your love for fellow, for, for fellow believers? Is there evidence of your love, enough of it, for someone to conclude that you are a follower of Jesus? They didn't see anything else but how you interact and how you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Would they recognize who you are. I want you to think about fish with me for a moment. All right? Now, God created fish to live and thrive in water. Is that right? Whether salt water or fresh. Gills are adapted to absorb oxygen from water so that, so water is the element, right, in which a fish finds its identity, its, its fishness. Is because of water. Its freedom is because of water. It finds itself in the element for which it was created, water. Now, it's limited to water. But in that limitation, there's great liberty. So now, suppose you had one of those kind of old-fashioned round fish bowls. You know what I'm talking about? You got your little fish swimming in the little fish bowl. And suppose your little fish swam round and round in his little bowl until he just got really frustrated. And it became unbearable for Mr. Fish. And so Mr. Fish decides to make a bid for freedom. And he leaps out of the bowl, out of the water. What's going to happen? Now, if he's lucky enough to land in the pond in your backyard... 
Perhaps it would increase his freedom because there'd be more water to swim in. Or perhaps the bigger fish there would just eat him. But if he jumps out and lands on the the concrete on your patio or the carpet in your living room, then his bid for freedom simply spells immediate death, right? Because he's no longer in his element. Now stick with me here, okay? If fish are meant for water, what are human beings made for? That would be an interesting question just for us to just if we could do it, and we, we don't have time to do it this morning, but if we just broke up into little groups and began to talk about, hey, what, what are humans made for? If fish are made for water, what are human beings made for? What is the element in which human beings find themselves as water is the element to which a fish finds itself? Well, because we don't have time to discuss it, let me tell you what I think. And I think this is scriptural. I think the answer is love. Love. Human beings are made for love because God is love. When he created us in his own image, he gave us the capacity to love and to be loved. So human beings find their ultimate destiny in loving God, who is love, and in loving one another, their neighbors. Love is where we belong. It is our fishbowl, if you will. Last spring, Mr. Alter's fifth grade class at Lake Elementary School in Oceanside, California, included 14 boys who had no hair. Only one, however, had no choice in the matter. Ian O'Gorman, undergoing chemotherapy for lymphoma, faced the prospect of having his hair fall out in clumps, and so he had his head shaved. But then, 13 of his classmates shaved their heads so that Ian wouldn't feel out of place. If everybody had his head shaved, sometimes people don't know who's who, said 11-year-old Scott in an Associated Press story. They don't know who has cancer and who just shaved their head. 10-year-old Kyle, one of the other boys in the class, started it all. He talked to some of the other boys, and before long, they all trekked to the barber shop. The last thing he would want is to not fit in said Kyle. We just wanted to make him feel better. Ian's father, Ian's the boy with cancer, Ian's father, Sean, choked back tears as he talked about what the boys in Ian's class had done. He said simply, it's hard to put into words. So brothers and sisters, what sacrifices are you and I making in the name of love? Are you willing to get your head shaved? What are you giving up to help others draw closer to Jesus? You see, if we wait for others to look 
and to act like us, to behave like us, we're going to be waiting a long, long time. I want to close with these words from our author, the Apostle John, again from his first letter to the churches. He's an old man, long in years. I imagine him thinking back to that night in the upper room with Jesus as he writes these words. 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. You see, those two are equal. We focus a lot on how important it is to believe in Jesus, to receive Jesus, to make Jesus Lord. That's really important. It's vital. It's critical. It's essential. But just as important and critical and essential is to live a life of loving like Jesus loved. He commands us to believe in his finished work on the cross and he commands us to love one another. So let's not retaliate when we're wrong. Let's not become enemies when we have different opinions or preferences or politics. But let's instead live in authentic love. Loving like Jesus loves by obeying his mandate to love. By living out his model of love and by consistently showing the manifestation of love. And when we do that, we're following his new commandment. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that you will help us to see clearly the areas in which we can grow in love.